economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I am Dr. Russ McCullough, the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics and founder of the Gortney Institute. With me are my two professor cohorts today without any graduate assistance. So I have with me Dr. Justin Clark, our Menard family Thank professor of philosophy and ethics, and his son joining us now as well. <laughs> my other professor here, Dr. Peter Jacobson, our professor of economic education and research. All right, so today we continue on with a little philosophy focus, and we're going to have Justin lead us through some counter arguments to what we left off with last time. We had dualism presented by Descartes, and it was the idea that the mind and the body are separate and one is dual with the other at the same time. And so uh, we're going to now look at some problems with dualism and the materialist uh, response to it. So... Justin, take us away. Great. Thanks, Russ. So yeah, like, like Russ mentioned, we talked about Descartes primarily as advocated. Sorry, we talked about dualism primarily as advocated by Descartes. And what's important about dualism is this idea that there are two different things. And in particular here, we'll call them substances because that's what Descartes called them. Two different kinds of substance. There are mental substances and there are physical substances, and that they interact with each other, as Descartes said, like a pilot interacts with a vessel. So, on Descartes' view, you are the pilot of your body, and you, of course, are your mind. Um, you are a thinking thing. And so, you can give orders to your body to raise your hand to put the burger in your mouth, et cetera. And your body can also send your mind information, things like, hey, your hand is in pain, or hey, that burger was delicious, that kind of thing. Or the burger was too hot. Now, this all kind of sounds well and good with a lot of people's intuitions, because most people do have, you know, we have the experience of telling our body to do things, and we also have the experience of getting information from our bodies. But there are some problems with dualism, both um, conceptual problems and empirical problems. The first problem is that Descartes kind of does this little hand wavy thing when we finally get to the question of how do these two substances interact with each other, right? Because we know how the brain interacts with the hand, for instance, if you place your hand on a hot stove, we can explain how your hand interacts with your brain. And when we do that explanation, we'll be talking about things like, you know, nerves and uh, your central nervous system and the firing that goes on from the hand through the ner central nervous system up to the brain. And then we can also talk about your brain sending a signal back to the hand in order to remove your hand from the stove. And I take it that all makes perfect sense. Feel free to, to stop me anywhere in this explanation if you think that I'm that something's unclear. But notice that when we give that kind of explanation, hand to brain and brain back to hand, uh, we are omitting the thing that Descartes is really says is giving the orders to the body, right? The brain, or sorry, the mind. And remember, the brain on this view is part of your body, 
a brain is a physical part of your body. So when Descartes talking about the mind, he's talking about something that communicates with the brain, but that isn't the brain itself. Remember, Descartes thought that you could survive death. That's one of his arguments for the mind being separable from the brain is that we can, can the mind being separable from the body is that we can conceive of a mind separate from a brain and separate from a body. And he's not talking about, you know, your brain surviving after your body dies. He's talking about your mind and you surviving after your body dies. So when Descartes finally gets around to telling us how the mind interacts with the body, he says, well, it's done through your pineal gland, which is a small acorn shaped little nub that sits kind of directly in the middle of your brain. And brain surgery was pretty primitive during Descartes' time. And he, it seems like he picked the pineal gland just because it kind of seemed like it was in the middle of the brain. So, and it, it also seemed like, you know, uh, the brain can be bisected into two, two parts. And the pineal gl gland was in the middle and it didn't have two parts. So it has this kind of unity that you would want. So he figured the transmissions have to be coming to and from this middle part, right? That seems like as good an antenna as anything else. But note then Descartes is telling us what part of the brain sends and receives information to the mind. The question is how this interaction occurs. And this is known as the interaction problem for dualism. Here we have two problems. Note that when I explained how the information from your hand gets to your brain, and from the information from your brain back down to your hand, I did that in physical terms, right? The terms of physics. Could it be the case that the mind interacts with the body according to the laws of physics? Well, arguably no, right? Because the whole point of having two different distinct substances is that one of them is a physical substance and the other is a mental substance. That is two different kinds of substances. We know the laws by which physical substances operate. Those are the laws of physics. So it doesn't seem to be the case that we would expect to find the mind interacting with the body physically. If that were the case, then it would just be one substance, right? Then the mind would be a physical thing physically interacting with the brain. But, but by Descartes' own argument, the mind is not a physical thing. So not only would we not expect it, it's kind of ruled out a priori. We know that the mind isn't going to physically cause changes in the brain. Okay. Yeah, you, would, you would almost need some sort of like spiritual connection, right? That something, something extra physical in order for this, uh, in order for you, because otherwise you can just collapse everything into whatever is receiving the communications, right? Exactly. And, you know, by his own admission, remember that mind is, you know, translatable as spirit, you know, we are talking a spirit to body connection. And so it, it would have to be kind of, kind of like a spiritual connection, right? But remember, Descartes is a mathematician and he's really concerned with rationality. We can also think about the rules by which, uh, you know, are there laws that the mind follows? And we might say, well, yes, there are laws that the mind follows. We can, we can talk about like the laws of logic, right? Where if you believe A, and if you believe if A, then B, then, you know, uh, reason compels you to also believe B. And in fact, if you don't follow that syllogism, we're actually not clear that you believe A or you believe 
if A then B, right? So right. to the extent that um, we want to credit people with having minds, we think that their minds also obey certain laws. So we could say, well, if the route from mind to body communication, if that bridge can't be crossed physically because the mind isn't physical, could the mind interact with the body logically? And the answer there seems to be, well, no, because the body's not logical, right? If we have rules by which mental entities can cause other mental entities, right? Mental events can cause other mental events. We have thoughts and we have rules by which thoughts can cause other thoughts. Okay, that explains how mental events cause mental events, but those are laws of logic. And maybe, you know, you know, a Freudian might tell you that, you know, we can via psychoanalysis come up with like non-logical laws or whatever, but these are going to be couched in mental terms. And we have uh, laws of physics by which physical events can cause other physical events. But it seems impossible that we would come up with any series or any set of laws that would explain how mental events could cause physical events. The domain of physics is supposed to be causally closed. And, you know, in the, the dream of the physicists, it's actually not only closed, but it's exhaustive. That is, it explains all physical phenomena. So that's the problem for dualism. The problem for dualism is that we seem to have not only no idea of how the mind causes the brain to, or how mental events cause bodily events or physical events, but it's not clear that we even have a conception of how they could cause physical events. So it's not like we even would know where to look or would even uh, recognize this causation if we found it. We seem to have two types of causation, both of which are mutually exclusive, physical causation and mental causation, and neither of which can be reduced or explained in terms of the other. So this is the big problem for dualism. Again, it's called the interaction problem. Yeah, so if I'm understanding right, this issue could be avoided by a dualist or by Descartes just by biting the bullet and say, why, yes, in fact, the physical system isn't a closed system and there's some relationship with the mental or the spiritual system and we just don't know what that is or something like there's that. There's some sort of channel that we're unaware of. Right, yeah. Or that not, must not, be that, there. not that that would be a satisfactory explanation, <clears throat> right. maybe, but that would be one way to maintain that, that there's no in inconsistency in my thinking. So that's actually what Descartes does specifically, okay. right? Descartes thinks that we just don't know how they interact, but they, sure. they must somehow, right? There's um, got to be a steering wheel somewhere and a yes. gas pedal. <laughs> um, it is post-Descartes when we start to learn more and more and more about biology, brain chemistry, et cetera, that this starts to look less and less appealing. This mm -hmm. can be seen as a kind of corollary to the, you know, the argument for like, the God of the gaps, yes. right? And this would be like the mind of the gaps, right? That, well, somehow there's, we'll find some physical processes that aren't caused by other physical processes and maybe the mind fits in there. Yeah. Now, as science has marched on, those gaps have gotten smaller and smaller. And so it's just like there are- And I wanna make sure the gaps that are smaller are brain, brain to physical, gap is that what you're saying the chemistry and chemical reactions that are going on that connect the 
brain mental activity to physical movement or something? Is that what you're saying? Those the, gaps? The, ga- the gaps between physical event and physical event. So okay. the gap theorist would have to say, well, even though we have a lot of information about what physical events cause other physical events, our information isn't exhaustive. And so we still have some physical events, which we can't explain in the brain. Maybe the mind causes those, and maybe those mental events are in turn caused by previous brain processes. So D- Descartes' mind mind physical gap still exists as big as it ever had. No gaps closed between what his dualist comments or dualism. Yeah, and in fact, it's it's actually hard to see how that gap could be bridged. Sure, right? since yeah. these are two very different things, it's like saying, well, somehow. Well, I'm fishing for an analogy here, and I'm not finding one <laughs> in my brain um, because it's a tough one, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're like, the, you're, that's the logical path you were saying that mental causes mental, physical causes physical, but having that gap still between the two. Yes, and note that scientific progress in you know since Descartes has done a lot to close those gaps. We now understand more and more about how the nervous system interacts with the brain and how the brain therefore you know interprets those signals and sends them back to the nervous system. We also have done a lot more experimental psychology. So we also know more about what mental events cause other mental events, right? We can say things like, you find this in, you know, in studies that you guys read and in studies about economics, about what information might lead someone to be biased one way or another, right? That would be information that would explain mental events in terms of other mental events, right? But what we don't seem any closer to is an explanation of how physical events are influenced by mental events. And indeed, it seems like as our knowledge of both these types of events gets better and better, it's unclear how we would find out that one um, causes the other in the way that Descartes requires. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. Going through this, I had to do a little digging to find Romans 7.15, but I couldn't help but think of the dualist nature maybe, and we'll comment maybe after our break here, but let me just read this first. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I'll just leave it with that verse. So, I I get this dualist feeling there, and I thought it'd be kind of fun to comment after the break on some of those things as we continue to explore the other areas of of the criticisms with Justin. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. Okay, we're back and wanted to think about our Romans scripture 
seem to present kind of a dualist type of, of argument there where we want to do good, but we can't do good. And we seem to do things that we don't want to do. And it was tied into our sinful nature. So it seems like the Bible supports some sort of dualism going on. Peter, what do you think? Yeah, I think at the very least, what we could say is the Bible recognizes a difference between our spirit, our soul, you could say, if, if we're using Descartes' terms, our minds, maybe, and at least the flesh that we have right now on earth. Uh, vessel so, as, yeah, as so, Descartes. So I, I'm not even sure that I'd go so far as to say that like the Bible has a dualist theme necessarily, a separation of body and soul. Because actually there's this like more permanent body sort of thing that, you know, is, is supposed to happen at some point. But at the very least, there is, as Russ, you alluded to, this difference between the flesh and our soul. And the flesh is generally like this, this bad thing with earthly desires. Jesus says to Peter when he's, I think when he's falling asleep at the garden, I think that's the context. He says, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I think that gets to a similar thing that Paul was saying to there. So definitely at least the existence of the spirit and the spirit's role in our, our lives on earth is something that, that the Bible alludes to. I guess you're making me think twice about even what I said, because I'm now I'm thinking back to Justin's mental versus mental that we're, we start off the mental part, the, the sin, sinful nature part is it can be a mental part. And then we then we logically and, and through faith, have come to grips of of our savior and now this dualism might resort more in the mental realm of course our physical part does right. that too so yeah. it's kind of a combination yeah of it's a number of things it's a little it's a little tricky yeah. yeah part of what that quote alludes to is what's in philosophy called acrasia or acrasia which is knowing what the right thing to do is and not doing it and doing something different and this is actually a problem in things like Dieting well, comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, because uh, most forms of like decision theory assume that when an agent knows what they want and knows how to get it, that that's the action that they'll take. But acratic behavior seems to be something that we find all over the place and it seems to be ruled out. So something that's ruled out by the theory, but that we see a lot. So I actually think you can have this problem of acratic behavior in either a dualist metaphysics or a, a monist or a physicalist sure. um, yeah. metaphysics too. So maybe we should get on to the materialist answer to the dualists. One of the first materialists is, you know, uh, Thomas Hobbes, for instance, was a materialist. And let's just give a little bit of explanation for kind of how the materialists argue. And what, so, what year, I, I don't know why, maybe I get into this chronology too much, but what year is Hobbes roughly? Because Descartes um, was 13. Hobbes is, you know, coextensive with Locke. No, uh, Descartes and Hobbes were similarly, similar period. Hobbes was born in 1588. Descartes, I think, was Descartes was born in 1596. So, uh, you know, they were contemporaries. Oh, that's right. I made the comment of post-Luther. 1517 was Luther on the 95 Theses. Okay, gotcha. So they're both 1600s, you know. And yeah, you mentioned that they were post-Luther, right? Yes. Yes. So... Maybe we didn't really talk about this too much, but in the same way that, you know, one of the Lutheran breaks with the church seemed to be about your individual relation to God and that you could do some of this on your own rather than mediated through the church. That's reflected in like the in Descartes version of philosophy that you can do it on, on your own, right? And you don't have to go through the scholastics like Aquinas. And that's mm-hmm. maybe just a throwaway point. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that 
materialists answer the dualist argument is to say things like, well, there's this official doctrine that we get from Descartes, and this is the way Gilbert Ryle puts it, and Ryle is a 20th century philosopher. That's something like this. And Ryle says, we're told that with the doubtful exceptions of idiots and infants in arms, every human being has both a body and a mind. And Descartes thought this because our minds seem distinct from our bodies. Our bodies are in space. They seem like they're subject to mechanical laws, but our mind isn't. And Ryle thought that on this view, our bodies are in public and our minds are kind of in private. So every person lives these actually two semi-parallel timelines that go through time together where, uh, you know, these things happen to your body and these things happen to your mind and the stuff that happens to your body is publicly witnessable, but the stuff that happens to your mind is somehow, you know, only viewable by you. And that though we live through these two timelines, it's very hard to explain the transactions between them, which is just another way of saying we still don't know how mind mental action acts, mental events cause physical events or physical events cause mental events. And he accused dualists of making what he called a category mistake. And so he said, well, what a category, what you do when you make a category mistake is you, is you mistake one type of thing for a different type of thing. You miscategorize something. And he said, well, you can imagine somebody going on a visit to the college, right? So if somebody is coming to visit Ottawa University and they go on a tour and they say, we're going to give you a tour of Ottawa University and they get led through the university and they go, okay, these are the dorms. Aren't these nice? Yes, they're nice. This is the dining hall. It's new. Look at it. It's shiny. Great. You know, and then they go through the administration building and they go, oh, you know, the offices on the bottom of the administration building, There's so much yelling in there. It doesn't sound like nice people who work down at the bottom of the administration building. But wow, there's that guy with a shiny head on the third floor. He looks really nice, et cetera. Um, and so they go through this tour of Vada University. And at the very end of it, they say, how'd you like your tour? And the prospective student says it was great. The cafeteria looked great. The dorms were great. Were also uh, fantastic. Love seeing the administration building, but I'm still, I can't, I can't wait for you to actually show me the university. You told me you were going to show me the university, right? You show me the dorms, you show me the administration building, you show me the cafeteria. Can't wait to see the university. And what's going wrong in that for the person who makes that claim, right, is that they think the university is something distinct and separate from the things which make it up. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. Ryle leads us through like an enormous amount of these examples, the kid who watches the parade of the army division and sees the tanks and the soldiers, et cetera. And he goes, boy, those tanks were formidable, blah, blah, blah. But I can't wait to see the army division again, where the army division is nothing but the tanks and the soldiers that make it up. And Descartes accuses, or sorry, Ryle accuses Descartes and duelists of making this same kind of error. Of assuming that of assuming that the mind is something over and above the physical processes of the brain or the body. So on Ryle's view, look, we know how the body interacts to send these signals from your brain to your arm and from your arm to your brain. It is a mistake to posit that there is something over and above the physical. What we should rather say is something like, 
those mental acts, those mental events just are physical events. And that way we have no problem with interaction because we know how physical events cause other physical events according to the laws of physics. So on this view, we know what pain is before we do any kind of brain chemistry. People writing 700 years ago could talk of pain. That's because we have one route to understanding what pain is, which is the introspective route, right? And then it turns out later that there is another route to understanding what pain is. And that is when we can identify which brain events are also pain events. And so this will be a discovery for us when we find out that brain is, for instance, C fiber firing in, sorry, that pain is, for instance, C fiber firing in the brain. So this explanation accords with Occam's razor. Occam's razor, it's usually described as the simplest explanation is the best one, but the actual formal definition of Occam's razor is that you shouldn't multiply entities beyond that which is necessary. And Ryle's point is the body, if we look at it, appears like some kind of complex machine, right? Even Descartes said this, bodies seem like machines. And on Ryle's view, dualists have a conception of the mind, which is what he called a ghost in the machine. This is where the phrase ghost in the machine, if you've ever heard of it, comes from. It's from Ryle's book, The Conception of Mind. And this <laughs> is the interesting. I hadn't heard that one, but it's got a nice, interesting ring to it, I guess. Yeah. So it's this view that, look, we know how a machine operates when we look at it operating mechanically. And we can explain how a machine operates according to the laws of mechanics. It does no extra work to posit that there's this ghost in the machine too. You can think of like, you know, a wind up set of teeth that chatters or whatever. We know how those teeth chatter. It won't help us understand how those teeth chatter to to posit that there's also some ghost in there that's doing the chattering too. Especially if we can explain why and when the teeth will chatter without reference to the ghost in the machine. So Justin, one thing that I'm a, little confused on and maybe it had so you can tell me if it this has been cleared up or you don't feel it has one of Descartes reasons for thinking that we do need a ghost in the machine was that we can conceptualize the ghost without the machine and this is sort of like an evidence that these two things are in fact separate things is that so is there an answer to that or is that I, I guess I, I'm confused how this is addressed that. Yeah, I'm not totally satisfied either with this yet. I'm not quite seeing the army, show me the university connection, if that's the mind. So I, I'm with Peter. Yeah, it seems like there's some functional difference between, in, in Descartes' view at least, between the mind and the body that's not maybe functionally different between a university and the buildings and the people who make it up. Yeah, so I'm going to give you the materialist response. This won't, this isn't quite my response, but it will be, I think it's the, uh, by the book materialist definite uh, response to your question. Sure. So just to restate your question, it's that uh, one of Descartes' arguments was that the mind seems to be, we can conceive of it being distinct from the body. So there are two responses to this. The first is that, well, conceivability actually isn't going to tell us anything about the way things actually are, right? We could conceive of the mind being distinct from the body, but just find out that it isn't. So that would be one argument, right? 
The second argument might go something like this. It might say, well, Descartes was operating in a really primitive time, right? You can think of something like Descartes' philosophy of mind being something like an alchemical description of what water is. Now, after the advent of chemistry, we find out that water is H2O. And if that's the case, and I can already see Peter's wheels turning here, but if it's the case that water turns out to be H2O, then after we make this distinction, or that gold is atomic number 79, right? So it has 79 neutrons. Then it turns out to not, once you know that, you can't conceive of gold being anything other than atomic number 79. It's something that you can, that is necessarily true. So even though it's not a priori, you can't just know it just by thinking, it is metaphysically necessary. And this distinction was really made very clear by Saul Kripke in the 20th century in his lectures, Naming and Necessity. This claim says Descartes maybe could have thought, could have conceived of the mind as being distinct from the body. But once we find out that pain is just C-fibers firing, then it turns out to not be the case that we can conceive this. Descartes was, you might think of Descartes' idea as somebody who's thinking, you know, not very clearly, like somebody who thinks, well, I, I guess I, I suppose I can, I can conceive of a square that's also a circle. But once you actually walk sure. them through what they think they're conceiving, that's not what they're conceiving. Okay. So th those would be the two answers. The first reply is, even if you could conceive it, that doesn't mean it's not true. And the second is, well, actually, you can't even conceive it. Materialism is a very popular philosophy of mind in the sense that substance dualism of the kind Descartes argued for, where the mind and brain are two distinct substances, while that used to be very popular, and in part because of the case Descartes made for substance dualism, it's less popular nowadays. Various forms of materialism or monism are more popular. But there, there are quite a few challenges to materialism. One is this idea that, uh, so first of all, let me explain how far the materialists run with this mind-brain identity. One view says that since we have discovered that the mind is the brain, I guess I've, I should say a little bit more about uh, this identity of the mind with the brain. Um, so we can think of somebody like Phineas Gage, who was the 18th century railroad worker who famously was pounding railroad spikes in and had a tool, which is a rod, I think is about four feet long, blown through his head and it entered his eye socket and came out the top of his head. And Phineas survived, although, as you might imagine, he developed uh, some interesting character quirks. And if you... If the idea that Phineas might develop some interesting character quirks after having a railroad spike blown through his brain seems intuitive to you, the materialist would say that might also be because you actually also think that the mind is the brain and therefore that damaging the brain can damage the mind, right? Mm. This is something that we tend to take for granted nowadays in the 20th century that, you know, this is why you put a helmet, a helmet on your kid that... Since the mind is the brain, damaging the brain can damage the mind. And this is why you want to uh, take care to protect your brain. This is why most of us come with this sweet little hard shell surrounding our brain, which we call a skull. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's similar to the Charles Whitman thing too. That the guy who became the Texas clock tower shooter who like left a note for I can't remember girlfriend or family or something saying, "Please examine my head after you after I die." And they find a, like a gigantic brain tumor has grown in there. Yeah, killed his wife, killed his mother, left a note saying, "Please look at my brain. It feels like something's something's wrong." Right, and when they did, there's a huge tumor pressing on his amygdala. Yeah, the first school shooting in, in America, really. Mm. And on this view, we can explain why Whitman did what he did, because the mind is the brain, and he had a, a brain abnormality, which we would expect to result in some kind of abnormal mental events too, right? Since we have this very tight identification of the mind with the brain, some philosophers have said things like, well, now we just know that this is an identity. So in the same way that we know that water is H2O or that gold is atomic number 79, we now know that mental events like pain are also physical events. And we know that mental events of a certain type are also physical events of a certain type. So we can say that pain is C fiber 32, firing because when we see pain, we always see the C fiber going off. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I uh, There's a little bit of causation correlation stuff going on there, but I, I know what is being said. Yeah. Yeah. So if we want to be sticklers about it, we could say, well, all we have is correlation, right? right. But if you want to go full stickler, then we have to go all the way to Hume and say, well, we actually never see causation, period. Sure. All we yeah, see is correlation. Yeah. And this seems to be a pretty good correlation. So right, right. insofar yeah. as we want to say is anything causes anything else, this looks like a pretty good candidate. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. What about the problems with this view? Well, there are a few of them. First, we might say, well, look, about, look at things like octopi. Octopi are really weird. I don't know if you guys have ever seen any video of like, of octopi before, but they're, you know, yeah, they're those big, weird looking animals. They can squeeze through a hole that's the size of a, of a quarter. Even very large octopi can do this. I've Only caught that's... one off a fishing pier before. So, oh, yeah, it's pretty Did weird. Did you eat it? No, but people were catching them to take them home to eat. Yeah. Yeah. You can actually look up videos of octopi in uh, aquariums at night and they will get out of their tanks, crawl across the room and eat fish. So they're very smart. Very smart. Yeah. But they don't seem to have anything like a central brain. Their nervous system seems to have split off from what any, from the evolutionary tree that the branch of the evolutionary tree that humans find themselves on a very, very long time ago. And in in particular, they actually don't have C fibers. They don't have the kinds of brains that we do. But if pain, what we mean by pain just is C fibers, and octopi don't have C fibers. Do octopi feel pain? It seems like the materialist answer would have to be no. But that's Which is good when my fishing hook went into them, so they got yeah. that going for them. <laughs> um, and Russ, you might say something like, "Yeah, that's why when I dragged the octopi out of the water, you know, I just clubbed it in front of all these children <laughs> because octopi can't feel pain." This is what I told them. Don't worry, kids. Octopi don't have C fibers. So uh, come take a whack at the octopi yourself, right? Yeah. So, so at least the materialists would have to say something like they don't feel the pain that we feel. They feel they might feel some other sort of thing that is like a replacement. Reactionary a sort of. Yeah. Yeah. If if the identity theory is real that um, <laughs> and this is called type identity, that all events that are pain type mental events are C fiber type brain events, 
And given that octopi don't have sea fibers, we have to say that they don't feel pain. Sure. There are some ways around this, right? A, a different problem with, well, so that's, that's one way that people argue about materialism. Some materialists go even further. They say that not only is, do we have an identity that pain is C-fiber firing, but this is an identity that gets us out of a kind of really primitive way of thinking. So terms like pain, angst, uh, heartbreak, these in philosophy are called folk psychological terms, meaning that they describe folk psychology, which is just another way of saying the way normal folk talk about their mental events. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is a brand of philosopher that's really kind of the, uh, the spawn of the churchlands, Pat and Patricia, sorry, Patricia Churchland in University of San Diego and Paul uh, Churchland who are both neuroscientists and philosophers who say not only is the brain identical with the mind, but we should stop using folk psychological terms. Once we understand that pain is C-fiber firing, we should just start using scientific language. This would be akin to, this is an advance similar to the advance we made when we figured out that illnesses were caused by germs, right? The germ theory of illness displaced things like, you know, the theory that you were, the illnesses were possession. And once we figured out that illnesses were caused by germs, we didn't say things like, oh, demon possession really just is, you know, a coronavirus infection. That's what the demon possession really is, right? We said, no, 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 no. That past theory those ter- we don't even use those terms anymore. Now we explain illness in terms of the germ theory. And the Churchlands say, now we should explain mental events just in terms, we should explain our own psychological states with scientific terms instead. So there's this great passage in a New Yorker article where Patricia comes home and she says, doing this out of memory, but she says, Paul, pour me a Chardonnay. My glucocorticoid corticoids are way out of rat out of whack if it weren't for my endogenous weren't for my endogenous hormones on the way home i would have wrapped my car around a tree uh yeah please pour me a chardonnay so i can sit down right so this is this idea that you know real educated scientific people should do away with these concepts like pain and angst and you know even frustration and talk instead about your brain chemistry so it seems like this is maybe it's not a category error. I'm not totally sure, but it seems like the 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 process of experiencing pain is different than the thing that causes it. Like it doesn't seem that like C fiber or whatever firing in your brain actually describes the experience of pain. It seems like it's just maybe describing some sort of like root cause or something like that. Yes. That's true. The physical response to you is just like, yes, that's correct. But that's like saying that, well, what the experience of water is different than the chemical structure of water. Right? See, I agree with that. So that's, there's a big problem there, I guess, is maybe that uh, I'm willing to say that things that are, aren't water actually are, are basically water sometimes. Um, but well, but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, the churchians agree with this too, right? They go, yeah, the experience of things is different than the scientific description of things. These are sure. just two different things, but that doesn't mean that, that the thing isn't the identity that it sure. is. Sure. Um, okay. 
But hold, what I think you're getting at is what's called the qualia argument against uh, physicalism. Um, And I think it's pretty devastating. So are we getting into a future podcast rabbit hole topic or is this spot on here as we're getting into our timeline here in the second half? Well, almost, but we can't, we can't quit without, without, we can't quit by giving the churchlands the last word. All right. Um, Yeah. Bring it on. Bring it on. Because this view, uh, it's not just that something like seems weird about the way the churchlands are talking and it does seem weird. Right. It all, it also just seems dumb, which is like, I think the, the worst charge to level against somebody who's trying to do something smart is that the smart <laughs> thing that they're trying to do is actually really, really dumb. <laughs> and look, we we gained we gained a lot when we accepted the germ theory of disease. Um, it helped us explain, predict, and control disease. Yeah, save, that we save lives, right? I mean, it was very yeah. practical. Yeah. The cost of letting go other theories of disease was very small. But the cost of letting go of our folk psychological language is really, really high. And in fact, it's so high as to be totally implausible that it's worth it. And if you think about the way in which we learn our folk psychological terms, things like pain, you know, think about how a child learns the word pain. We don't show them a picture of sea fiber firings. Right. They touch a hot burner. And they learn. Yeah. And we ask them to kind of introspect and say, see how that felt? That's pain, right? So the way in which we learn these terms is to look kind of inside and see what's happening. And if you tried to go full Churchland and teach these kids from the get-go that C-fiber firing is just, if you just substituted the word C-fiber firing, you would have no difference except that the vocabulary would change. So you would only have a semantic difference and then it would still be a problem or it would be another thing altogether to explain to these children that the internal thing that they were looking at, that they were calling C-fiber firing or whatever, actually refers to C-fibers that are outside in their brain, et cetera. And this might maybe come to a place where we can talk about some other objections to physicalism. What, was that the, the quail point that you were mentioning? Well, we're about to make the quailia okay. point. Or actually, maybe maybe now is a, is a good time, because maybe the quailia objection works better once we've talked about functionalism, which is a, a way to try and make physicalism less crazy than the Churchland version of it. So since we're at 45 minutes... Perhaps now is a good time to end, and then we can talk about functionalism next time, which is an attempt to improve upon materialism without committing ourselves to a kind of substance dualism, which seems explanatorily difficult. Explanatorial, explanatorial, oh my gosh, I can't say that, but it's still alive. It's not completely dead. It can't be refuted in a sense, right? I mean, we can look at evidence that's compelling, I guess, but Descartes, I think, therefore, I am is still in the mix in this. Even materialists don't doubt this truth of Descartes' statement, I think, therefore, I am. They just think that what does the thinking is a material thing, right? right. It is a brain. Right. But at the same time, I guess what I'm saying is there's enough fogginess with the data that there still could be this dualism going on. Materialists just say no, but... 
it, it takes a little bit of a leap of faith. There's not hardcore proof. We haven't exhausted the various even kinds of dualism that are in the mix. So oh, there's okay. also, so what we've talked about so, so far is substance dualism. Okay. This idea so this that there is, are two distinct substances. This is where um, we'll kick in for our next episode with uh, bringing in another another form of this. Yes. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. And otherwise, feel free to just pass this along, hitting the share button or otherwise, to get your other friends and family who might be interested in listening. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.